0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> as we have been saying, uh, the Apostle John once wrote that when Jesus came, he manifested his glory. That's John's way, I think, of saying that Jesus' true identity was made known. His, his identity as the light of the world, his identity as God with us, his identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those are the things that were made known when Jesus came. And for a long time, the word that the church has used to talk about that making known is epiphany, and that's the season of the year that we find ourselves in. And a few weeks ago, we started reading together from places in the Gospels where Jesus' glory is made manifest, where it is seen. And we're going to continue that this morning by reading uh, about the wedding in Cana of Galilee. So I'm going to read from John 2 for us and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you, you can just listen as I read from John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is God's word and it is given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would help us to be uh, the people that we just... Uh, saying that we wanted to be <laughs> the people who wait on you. Um, Father, we ask that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't be troubled at our lack of patience, that you would, you would meet with us, that you would help us to, to wait on you and that you would meet us uh, where we are in faith and outside of faith, those who are struggling, those who aren't, those who are hungry and thirsty to hear, those who are distracted for whatever reason. Father, help us to wait for you to meet us and show us how much you love us in Jesus. Change us by it. And we pray it in his name, amen. Well, several years ago, uh, we had a newcomer's lunch over in the fellowship hall that was hit uh, with a a perfect storm. Uh, Many of you have been to one of these newcomer's lunches, but if you haven't, uh, I'm just gonna tell you it's exactly what it sounds like it is. we have a lunch for folks who are new to the church, and uh, some of the staff and sometimes people who have been here for a long time join in with the newcomers, and we, we get to know one another. We eat together. We spend a little time introducing folks to the things that we value here at the church, talking about ways to get involved. So we had one of these several years ago, and it became very obvious very quickly that we were going to have a problem. Uh, first, lots more people. Uh, showed up than we anticipated We're going to show up. That's always a good thing, of course. No one's ever really sad about that. But the second thing that happened was that the people who showed up, I guess they were really, really hungry. I mean, really hungry. <laughs> so maybe you see where this is going. Food uh, started running out, and it started running out fast. This is one of my greatest fears. I think I speak for all the staff, but for sure for me, this is one of my greatest fears when we host folks for any kind of meal, and there it was, materializing right in front of our eyes. First one pan of food went empty, then another pan of food went empty, then another uh, pan of food went empty. And as the last couple uh, was making their way through that line, trying to cobble together a meal out of the scraps that were left, I could not help myself, and I told them I was sorry that we had run out of food. They were very gracious about it, very understanding, to be honest. And we actually had a laugh about it, and I think that that laugh that we had about it was what made the guy feel so comfortable to say what he said to me next, which was, yeah, we grew up in the South. This would never happen at a church down there. (laughs) It was like like a dagger in my heart. And true story, true story, that couple did not come back to Covenant. They ended up at Pastor Dan's former church, and they told him about how we ran out of food. And Pastor Dan has been happy to mention that several times since. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that it stunk when that happened. And as bad as that was for us, church, you have to know that this family in Cana, the family who was hosting that wedding that Jesus came to with the disciples. You have to know that family would have seen running out of wine as a million times worse than what we experienced that Sunday in a shame and honor culture that valued hospitality as highly as it did. It would have been a social crisis that hung over their head for months, maybe maybe for years. But Jesus first miracle. The sign that manifested his glory was a kind act that kept the party going. It was much more than that too, as I hope we'll see, but it was not less than that. And I think all of that matters for people like you and me. John tells us on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now that is a an odd way to start a story with a time marker like that on the third day. I mean, I think what John means to say is it was three days after what he had just written about, Um, but of course, marking out the third day has a long and important history in the Christian faith. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, and I don't know if John meant to just drop in a little teeny bit of foreshadowing about that or not, um, but it surely would not surprise me if that's what he intended because John's gospel works like that an awful lot. That's how he likes to tell stories. There is a meaning that happens, of course, on the surface of things, and then there is a meaning under those things, too. I think that's why, at least one of the reasons, why John calls Jesus' miracles signs. He calls them signs because he wants us to know they aren't just displays of power. They are signs. They signify something. These things are indexed to other realities, And so that's why, church, when he says there was a wedding and Jesus and some of his disciples are there, that wedding is at the very same time both a really happy and really joyful thing for that bride and that groom and that family. It is that for sure, but it is also a pointer to something else. Weddings are really, really, really important in Scripture. The joy of them, the happiness at them are used as symbols of God being with his people in peace at the last. In Mark 2, Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom at the wedding. He says his disciples are like all of the guests at the feast, just having a great time. In Matthew 21, he just comes out and says that the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king giving a wedding feast for his son. Later on, as we heard in the New Testament lesson this morning, the Apostle John says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I guess what I'm saying is that ever, you know, before we ever find out what happens at this particular wedding, before we ever know what happens at that wedding, it is already charged with meaning even if nothing remarkable happened at that wedding it was already a sweet taste of what we've been made for the non-stop party at the end of time the wedding feast where a great multitude clothed in fine linen will sing hallelujah but something remarkable did happen at that wedding of course. Mary was at the wedding. Cana was just a few miles from Nazareth where she lived. That proximity explains why she would be there and why Jesus would naturally have been invited to that wedding too. Weddings at the time were huge affairs. You know, they could last for days. Sometimes they could even last a week. Guests, some of them would stay for the entire time. Others would drop in and out as they were able to. It It was usually a pretty big financial strain on the parents, but one that was gladly undertaken. And in small rural areas like Cana, like Nazareth, pretty much everyone who lived there, unless you had beef with them, everyone lived there would be at the wedding. Now, we don't know how long that party had been going, but at some point, uh, the wine ran out. Somehow, Mary knew about that, and she went to Jesus, and she said, they have no wine. She doesn't ask him to do anything in particular about it but it certainly seems like Jesus understood that she was asking him to do something. I mean, for one thing, it's his mom. We don't know exactly what she thought he could do at that wedding or should do, but we do know that no one at that party knew him better than she did. And as Tim Keller put it once in a sermon, She knew he wasn't normal. And she also knew, like everyone else at that party, and it's a small group, it seems, who was privy to the bad news about the wine, she also knew that running out of it would have been a huge problem for her friends. Like I said before, at the very least, it'd be whispered about for a long time, the bust-out wedding, the people who couldn't quite pull off one of the most important parties of their life. (laughs) The less than hospitable hosts, the wine ran out. And church, it always does. (laughs) It always does. The wine always runs out. Every good and every joyful thing that we've ever had, every good and joyful thing that we've ever been a part of, eventually runs out. The wine runs out, the conversation ebbs, the last slice of pizza gets taken, someone turns out the lights to end the party, the the band finishes the last song in the encore, the center fielder catches the final fly ball in the bottom of the ninth, the last day of your vacation finally arrives. It always runs out. The wine always runs out. And that's the truth. And church, listen to me. That does not make those things any less good. It does not make them any less joyful. Part of having faith to begin with, part of having Christian faith to begin with, and then growing up in that faith is learning to embrace the good gifts that God sends our way as he sends them. And to learn to hang on to them as long as we can and savor them with thankfulness. And to savor them with adoration. And that virtue, church, that virtue of thankfulness is is what helps us see these things for what they really are. Very good gifts, excellent, beautiful gifts, fleeting tastes of the things that we have been made for. We've been made for love that never ends and a good that never ends and joy that never ends. We have been made for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I shall know fully, St. Paul says, even as I have been fully known. That's what we've been made for. So listen, church, the next time you're reading a book and it is amazing and, or the next time you're listening to a song and it's so beautiful that you're, you, don't even, you can't even express it with words, the next time you're experiencing some good thing or some joyful thing and you think to yourself, I don't ever want this to end, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to say thank you, God, for this gift. <laughs> Thank you so much for this gift and help me to live faithfully towards the day when all that is good and all that is joyful will never end. Thank you and help me to live faithfully until that day." Thankfulness for these things is the antidote. It's the antidote to what people like you and me often do with good and joyful things. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I treat good and joyful things as if they are the ultimate thing. As if that's all there is, which is way too much weight for any of these things to bear. It's way too much weight. And when they run out, like they always do, we feel beside ourselves. And before too long, our whole lives, give or take, are about chasing stuff down and trying to hold on to it as tight as we can. And then they start to feel less good and less joyful. And if we don't put the brakes on, we will start walking down this bottomless road of need that will end up hurting us and hurting everyone around us. And I'm telling you, church, proper thankfulness, the virtue of thankfulness and gratitude to God for what he has given us, it's the antidote that starts working that poison out of our system. And it helps us to follow more faithfully the one who is going to lead us to that day that we have been made for. When we sit and we feast with him and he pours the wine of endless joy. And endless good for us. So Mary tells Jesus, they have no wine. (laughs) And Jesus says, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, so what is it with uh, Jesus talking that way to his mom? Well, first of all, you know, that address wouldn't have sounded quite as discourteous to them as it does to us. That's just the truth about how culture and language work differently between then and now. But don't get me wrong, there is definitely an inexplicable sharpness, an inexplicable, inexplicable edge to it. But he does call her woman later in the gospel, later when he is hanging on the cross and he sees her anguish and he makes provision for her care after he's gone. There's no questioning his tenderness and love and affection. But here he asks about the wine. What does this have to do with me? It creates some distance, it creates some separation. I mean, I don't know exactly why he responds to her like this. I like thinking about why, but I don't know exactly why. I only know the reason that he gives her, which is what we all know. My hour hasn't yet come, which is a very surprising thing to say because what hour are you talking about, Jesus? Mary wouldn't have known this hour that he's talking about. This is the first of nine times in the gospel that refer to Jesus' hour. I like to think of it. I always think of this as, as when Jesus appears on the scene, there is this clock that also appears, and only he can see it. And it is counting down inexorably to his hour, and he keeps his eye on it all of the time. And then finally, just before his last night with the disciples, just before he is arrested, Jesus says, the hour has come. And that's the hour that he's talking about. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the hour of his suffering, the hour of his cross, which in the scandal of our faith is the hour of his glorification. (laughs) That's the place where his glory is seen most fully and most clearly. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cross is the greatest epiphany of the glory and love of Jesus for people like us. And somehow hearing this, somehow hearing Jesus say this is more than enough for Mary. As strange as it would have sounded to her, as impenetrable as the meaning of it would have been, it was enough. It was at least enough for her to know that it is okay to leave things in the hands of Jesus now. Her faith is strong and boundless. Not for the first time, and certainly not for the last. Her faith is strong and boundless. And so she slips away, and she says to the servants, that guy over there, do whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you. I don't know what kind of jam you are in right now. I don't know the trouble that you're staring down. I don't know the disappointments. I don't know the failures. I don't know the shame that you feel that seems to shape everything around you that tarnishes everything around you. I don't know the stuff hanging over you, but I'd like you to have faith enough and hope enough to take Mary's word very seriously. To learn from her boundless and strong faith in Jesus do whatever he tells you do whatever he tells you because you're good and mine that's what he's after and you can be sure of that you can take it to the bank to wit john tells us there were 6 stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification These would have been used for the guests to wash their hands or maybe for the utensils that were used to prepare and serve the food. It would have been used for the the dishes and things that the food was served on. Jesus talks about these things in Mark 7 as things that were simply part of the religious tradition of the day. Being fastidious about washing up would have been a reminder about sin. It would have been a reminder about forgiveness. It would have been a reminder to God's people about trying to live a life that is holy. And that's not a bad thing on its own. But of course, over time, you may know how these things end up working out in your life and mine. That can end up being substituted for the real thing. You know, like living a holy life is about being fastidious, about washing up. At any rate, that tradition had been going on for a long time. Lots and lots and lots of water poured over lots and lots and lots of stuff for a very, very long time. And Jesus decides, I have another use for those things. I'm going to do something new with them. Tells the servants to fill the jars with water, and they do, right up to the brim, they're sloshing over. Jesus tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And he can't believe his mouth. <laughs> he calls the bridegroom over for a little little slap on the back. Man. Most people serve the good stuff first, and then after everyone has drunk freely, then they bring out the bottom shelf stuff. But you've really surprised me here. And I just want to make sure that you know I know you have saved the good wine until now. Gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of good wine. A lavish, absurd Prodigal amount of good wine Church what does it mean Well it means That the party kept on going for one thing It didn't even Skip a beat hardly anyone was the Wiser and that is the meaning for sure Right there on the surface of things And it's pretty beautiful on the face of it Saving his friends from shame Like he did Keeping things joyful Keeping things good for a little while Longer what a good gift worthy of our thanks, worthy of our praise. But like I said with John, there's a meaning always under the meaning. It is a sign after all, and the thing to which this sign points is not exactly really hard to, put, to figure out. Jesus made it pretty transparent on that night when his hour finally did come, right? He's in the room, quiet with his disciples. He takes up a cup of wine. He gives thanks for it. And he says, This is my blood of the covenant (laughs) poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Church, he is the one who makes a way for you and me. By faith in him, repentance and faith in him, he is the one who makes the way to the good and joyful feast that we have all been made for. He's the good wine. That is Jesus' glory made manifest at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's the epiphany that day at the joyful wedding. And his disciples, John said, believed in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe in him. That we would see him for who he is in all of his glory in all of His beauty, in all of His love, in all of His mercy for people like us, that we would see and that we would believe and that we would rest, that you would make us a people who become thankful for that and thankful for all of the good gifts that you give us, that they would find their proper place in our lives, that we would use them well and rightly for the good of this broken world. Father, help us to believe so that we can grow in our faith and mature and strengthen in it. Help us to believe so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.